Dr. Sacharitha Bowers went to medical school and completed her dermatology residency at Southern Illinois University. She has extensive experience in private practice and managed to make the transition from private practice back into academics and is now the program director where she trained. She has a particular interest in immunodermatology and the impact of nutrition and supplementation on dermatologic disease. Because of her interest in diversity, inclusion, and health equity, she is also the vice chair of the Diversity, Inclusion, Community, and Equity Council. In this episode, we cover the basics of dermatology, what everyone should know for when a casual acquaintance that thinks that you are closer than you really are asks you, hey, can you take a look at this rash on my undercarriage? She dispels some myths about sunblock, tells us what qualities to look for in a moisturizer. She then teaches us about all the things that dermatologists spend their day doing aside from prescribing steroid creams and doing biopsies. Turns out dermatology is, wait for it, more than skin deep. Follow her on both Instagram and Twitter at SBowersMD. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. Dr. Sasharitha Bowers, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. So let's get right into it. Is every rash really a maculopapular rash? <laughs> this question makes me giggle. It really does because maculopapular for whatever reason, is such a triggering word for dermatologists. And I kind of chuckle because early on in my career, I was in that camp of, it's not maculopapular, it's morbilliform. And morbilliform means like a viral exanthem. And when you say maculopapular, essentially, that's what a viral rash looks like. That's what a viral exanthem looks like. Now when I hear it, I almost just have to say, is it really that big a deal? Because they really are macules and papules. And I think it's just this thing that dermatologists get really picky about. Since terminology is such a big part of our physical exam, and it's understandable that we get we get pretty detail-oriented about our terminology. And that's one thing we really make sure we emphasize with our medical students is you're not going to come out of here learning everything there's to know about dermatology, but no matter what field you go into, you should know how to describe a rash because when you're sending things to your consulting physicians, the better you can describe it, the easier they will be able to actually help you over the phone, even without seeing the patient. So that's why terminology ends up being so important. But truth be told, maculopapular is because they're macules and papules. However, if you want to sound really smart and impress your fellow dermatologists, call it morbilliform and they will know exactly what you're talking about. Well, I'm, I'm sure sometimes they get annoyed because really every rash is described. Every rash you can find. I'm sure you can find a little macule some, uh, somewhere um, among the papules yes. or a little papule among the macules. But really, yes. if it's not a maculopapular rash and we're not good at describing it, we're going to end up calling it a maculopapular yeah. rash. I think that's, that's probably where yeah. some of that comes from. Yeah. And I mean, Derm 101 terminology primer, macules are flat, less than a centimeter, papules are raised greater than a centimeter. Some textbooks say five millimeters, but we generally use 10 millimeters or a centimeter. A plaque is something that's raised and, and has its elevated look. Like when you think of a little plateau, a mini plateau, that's a plaque. A nodule is really firm and you can kind of feel that it's got substance under the skin. 
ulcers and erosions are similar in that erosions are where the skin, the epidermis is lost and it's more superficial and ulcers go into the dermis. And then there's vesicles and bullae. So those are blisters and vesicles are small blisters and bullae are large blisters. And there's cyst and tumor. So cyst is your fluid filled lesion. A tumor is basically just a really big nodule. So a tumor doesn't imply malignancy by any means. It's just a, a large lesion. Yeah, and then we have the, additional I think it's like Greek for mass, right? I yeah, yeah, Tumor, exactly. rubor, mm-hmm. color. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Remember that stuff? So, yeah, I mean, rashes, they do have different different, different features, right? Different morphologies. You can have something that has blisters. You can have something that's urticarial or hive-like. But to, you know, to most non-dermatologists, everything does look like macules and papules. And everything also gets treated with a steroid cream. Oh, I know. Right? This is probably one of the, one. This is another thing that it's not necessarily false. We do use a lot of steroid creams and steroid creams are applicable in a variety of conditions. But there's some things steroid creams just don't help. Like steroid creams aren't going to help anything that's infectious. They're going to make your infectious things worse because you're suppressing the local immune response. So if you put a steroid cream on athlete's foot, it's going to make it worse. And that often shows up when we have patients who, like if their primary care doctor isn't quite sure if they've got a fungus or they have a dermatitis, they might give them a combo cream that has both. And if it is a fungus, this the steroid part of it might potentially make that fungus worse or it's going to negate the effects of the antifungal. Um, so we usually say, if you're going to use a steroid cream, just know what you're treating and make sure it's inflammatory. It's not fungal. Obviously, it's not going to help any kind of malignant rashes like lymphomas. Sometimes it can. Sometimes it can help lymphomas, cutaneous lymphomas. But for the most part, we use them for anything that's in, we call inflammatory. So something that's got inflammation in the skin, psoriasis, eczema, bug bites, stuff like that. But it's not going to help your hives because your hives is an allergic response. So it just, it varies. We do a lot of, we do steroid creams daily and there's all kinds of formulations and all kinds of different, like there's like, you know, 20, 30 different kinds of steroids. So we end up picking our three or four favorite and those are the ones we use all day long. Do you have any favorite non-steroid, like over-the-counter creams? I know one of my, actually, so far, two out of three of my boys have some degree of eczema. So we use CeraVe uh-huh. on them. Do you have any favorite yeah. moisturizers? Oh, I sure do. No oh affiliate gosh, links, yeah. by the way. This is not uh, no affiliate like any links. I do here. have to make right. Absolutely. Um, I have no financial conflicts of interest with any of this, but I do have my favorites, and and everyone's got their favorites. The thing that we remember when we're telling when we're advising patients on moisturizers is knowing what kinds of things they're not going to use. So if someone wants something that's really greasy, they're not going to want to use something that's not greasy. If someone wants something that's not greasy, they're not going to use something that is greasy. So knowing your patient and their preferences is really important. But generally speaking, you want to pick something that's thick and non-fragranced. So your Bath and Body Works lotion, sorry, Bath and Body Works or anything that's you know fragranced or really pretty smelling or pretty looking, those really not, they're not going to moisturize effectively enough. And you also predispose yourself to potential contact allergy. So really try to, to um, emphasize non-fragranced, bland, white creams. This, and, and this is a common thing that gets confused. A lot of our patients will say, oh, I'm using a lotion you know, every day. And you know, is that fine? And when you go to the drugstore, you'll find that there's lotions, which usually come in pump bottles or creams that come in jars or tubes. And if you have skin that is not dry, 
and you want to put a lotion on, the lotion is going to make your skin a little bit softer. But if you have dry skin, you've got to kick it up a notch. So lotions just aren't moisturizing enough. There's too much water in them. So that's when you want to go to a cream. A cream has less water and more actual emollient in it. And that's why so, it's not in a pump bottle because it won't be able to make it efficiently right. through the pump because it's thicker. Exactly. Mm. So our eczema patients, we're not recommending lotions to them. We're recommending creams. And if they want to kick it up even another notch, they can do something that's an ointment-based moisturizer Ooh, like Aquaphor, you know? Yes. Now that's hard to have someone put that all over their body no one really wants to be greasy all over their body. So many times we're recommending those kind of moisturizers for just hands. You know, someone like after, if you, after you do dishes or after you're washing your hands at work, especially physicians or any healthcare workers, ointment-based moisturizers, um, you know, can be helpful. But then you have some, some professions they are working with their hands. Like if you have someone who's a chef or, um, you know, working with tools, you're not going to want to have them use a greasy ointment because <laughs> they're going to slip out of their hands. Cause harm. Yeah. yeah, you don't want those knives playing around the kitchen. So you really have to think about the context of the patient. But generally speaking, I, we love thick creams, Cetaphil cream, CeraVe cream, and a dermatologist's favorite, Vanna cream, which is made without uh, a lot of potential allergens. There's no lanolin in there, no parabens, no fragrance, no alcohol. So it's just got less stuff in there. It's got less of the bad stuff and more of the good stuff. So Vanna cream is definitely a go-to. And now it's more widely available at most stores. It used to not be. So let's take a little pivot from the creams to sunblock. So a lot of this really applies mm-hmm. to everyday people. Like this this is a physician-oriented podcast, but I think a lot of the information we're, we're getting is really going to be relevant to anybody. Um, let's talk mm-hmm. about sunblock. So. You know, one of the things that I I think um, really industries pull the wool over people eyes over people's eyes is all of this anti aging stuff, right? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and really, ultimately, what it comes down to is sunblock. You want anti aging mm-hmm. sunblock, like period, end of mm-hmm. sentence. Is that is that correct? Uh, you got it. <laughs> Essentially, yes. There's a few things that are must dos for anti-aging, and then all the other stuff is like gravy. So definitely doing all the things you can to minimize harmful sun exposure. And that goes, it definitely includes sunblock, you know, using the appropriate SPF and with the you know, right application techniques and reapplying every two hours. And as far as the details go, we usually will say use an SPF 30 for your daily use. But if you're going to be outside for gardening or biking or hiking or whatever, they'll the higher SPF you use, you you get only incremental benefits in actual sun protection. So an SPF 30 will block 97% of the sun's rays and an SPF 50 gets closer to 99%. The incremental increase is small. However, what happens is with the sunscreen curve, as time goes on, that sunscreen breaks down. And at about two hours, it's broken down to the degree that it's not reliable in its SPF protection. So the thought is if you use a higher sunscreen number, you might potentially have a little bit of buffer. That's how I explain to my patients uh, in this non-scientific way that makes sense to them is that you have a little bit of buffer, but you got to be careful because then you know you get out of your routine and pretty soon it's three, four hours. And then you're that person that says, I put sunscreen on, but I'm still burned. So we still try to emphasize to our patients, make sure you're reapplying it. If you're going to be out all day long for recreation, make sure you're reapplying it every two hours. 
And if you've been in the water for 40 minutes, then it's going to wear off. And so you need to go ahead. Or if you're sweating, like if you're you know, biking or running or something, you're going to want to reapply it afterwards. And then they still say for people who can't reapply, especially people who are in the middle of working outdoors and you can't necessarily reapply, is using UV protective clothing. And those work really good too. But you know, that's not the only way that you can use SunSmart behaviors. There's certainly seeking shade. So instead of just laying out in the sun, being under umbrella, especially if you're at the beach or something, making sure that you're being more mindful during the hotter part of the day. I don't tell people, don't go out between the hours of 10 and 3 because let's be real. I mean, if you're going to go out, you're, you're going to go out. I mean, it's just the most ridiculous advice ever, in my opinion, to say, don't go out between the hours of 10 and 3. It's just, you know, go out, enjoy yourself. I'm very much a big proponent of enjoy yourself. Like, I really think we all need to get outside more and have our kids play more. And we all need to, you know, be more active outdoors, but just do it smartly and just protect yourself from those burns and and the long-term effects of UV. So my wife is black and she never wears, almost never wears sunblock. Can you tell her something to convince her that she needs to wear sunblock? Because I'm I'm like pretty close to translucent. So if I, if I go outside at all, like I need to put on gobs and gobs of sunblock. Otherwise I'm going to be miserable Mm -hmm. for the rest of my life. Mm She doesn't doesn't need to, right? Because she doesn't burn so easily. So she rarely, rarely wears it. Can you convince her? Yeah. Oh my gosh, you are asking just the perfect question because this is such a hot topic. There's actually some controversy within dermatology about this because there have been dermatologists who've gone on national TV morning shows and, and really touted the fact that everybody needs to wear sunscreen. And then there are really there's evidence-based dermatologists who've really pushed back on that uh, in the public narrative, saying, you know, where's the data to show that sunscreen makes a difference in our darker pigmented patients? Where's the evidence to show that it's going to actually reduce melanoma risk in those patients? Because we know melanoma in our darker skin patients, in our skin types you know, four or five, six, in our African American patients or our Asian patients who are darker skin types. It's it's not the, the relationship between UV exposure and melanoma is is much more nebulous, and the melanomas that those patients get are not on sun exposed areas. It, that becomes tricky. The natural pigment of darker pigmented skin absolutely helps protect against UV. That's what melanin does. So definitely having darker pigment will protect you both from skin cancer risk as well as photo aging risk. We're just not entirely sure how much and how variable. That can vary, you know, vary from person to person. For example, if you go based on my skin type, I shouldn't burn, but I still will get a sunburn. I, you know, I've been out on the mountain and I've gotten a sunburn on my nose from reflection of snow because I didn't reapply my sunscreen. And I remember the first. Yeah, but time that's I went an elevation breaking. where there's less protection, and right. like those circumstances are really extenuating, right? And it's reflecting off of the snow, so that's that, you know, that's a lot of. Yeah, she's definitely gotten burned before, but it's just few and far between. Like it was, she was in the Caribbean all day mm-hmm. laying out. Mm-hmm. That was one time when I got burned. So the first time I went <laughs> on spring break, um, I, with my kids, with my, sorry, with my uh, girlfriends in college, I had to wear sunscreen and I got burnt my first day and I was so miserable. And I'm thinking, how can I get burnt? I'm Indian. I'm not supposed to get sunburned. And, um, and if you go by my skin type, 
which is why the the Fitzpatrick skin types aren't, they really do need to be adapted because they actually don't reflect all the nuances in skin tone and skin color. Yeah, I think I might be a but zero. My, yeah, <laughs> you might be a zero or 0. 0.5. Yeah. But to answer your question, you know, darker, darker, darker skin types, then the necessity to wear sunscreen, the evidence just isn't quite as robust to actually support it. So mm. I hate to tell you that. Yeah, um, get off her back about it. it. That works. Yeah, you you but but you know it is it is just a good practice for photo aging in general. That being said, I have my my African American patients who are in their sixties and seventies who never wore sunscreen and their skin just looks amazing. But you would never believe it. And um, I see the same thing with my grandparents in in India. I mean, they're passed away now, but I remember them, you know, into their into their eighties, and they just they didn't really have wrinkles. Yes, and they were she likes to remind me. She likes to remind me. Right. So yep. she, she's, not as, she's not wrong, but <laughs> it's also a good practice to model to our kids too. So, um, yeah, because my kids, you know, our kids that, are, are, are lighter. So they, they definitely need to wear. Yeah, well, exactly. here's something that, mm-hmm. that now that you're saying that, I'm not really sure. I heard from another dermatologist that a base tan is not a thing. So like if you get tan, more tan earlier in the summer, later in the summer, you're mm-hmm. less likely to burn because you've got this base tan. She said mm-hmm. baloney. So would you agree or disagree? Because I would think that what you're saying now, maybe it is a little protective. A hard cosine on that, actually. Um, okay. I, I do agree that the tan is, is, has about an SPF 4 protection, basically minimal to none. And the base tan, of course, is still a tan. So you're still getting that UV damage, even with the base tan. And even if you, in your experience, may notice that you're less likely to burn when you have that base tan, you're still going to tan. So we know now that tanning rays are just as harmful for skin cancer and photo aging, as well as burning rays. So you've got your UVA, which are your tanning rays, and UVB, which are your burning rays. So when the thought was always, well, if I have a base tan, then I won't burn. So if I don't burn, then I won't get the damage. But now we know tanning, even without burning, can cause skin cancer as well as all the photo damage, like the brown spots, the wrinkles, all the things we don't want to have. That's the problem with the base tan is it can be this false sense of protection um, that you're not getting the damage when in fact you're still going to tan. And a burn is actually your body's protective mechanism. Those cells, when you get a sunburn, those keratinocytes are actually dying in the skin. You know, they're dying off. They're called sunburn cells. And this is your body's protective mechanism to try to eliminate the the potential for those DNA mutations to replicate. So it's a good thing in a way. It's our defense mechanism to say, hey, stop being out in the sun and no, and burning, getting a tan without a burn in some ways can be more harmful because it gives you the sense of security that you're not getting damage. You're really bursting all my balloons yeah. here. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so actually while we're on the topic of, of skin cancer, you know, that it's, it is a shame that this is a podcast and not like a YouTube channel because dermatology is so visual. Mm-hmm. But you, you really gave us a great list of the different types of rashes and descriptions. What about for biopsies. Do you have any quick and dirty rules for that? And if if you don't, right, again, with the disclaimer that all of this is to be taken within the judgment and context of your own medical education, and Dr. Bowers takes no responsibility for the decisions that you make based on what you're hearing today. However, do you, yeah. do you have any 
you know, quick and dirty rules that you can pass on to us over the podcast about what can be watched and what can be what needs to be yeah. biopsied and what needs to be sent along to someone, yeah, a specialist. Yeah, definitely. We're biopsying all day long, and many times our uh, primary care residents who rotate with us are surprised that we don't do as many punch biopsies, and we do a lot of shave biopsies where we literally just use a razor blade. And if we have a concerning lesion, um, like something that's concerning for basal cell or squamous cell, or even often for melanoma, depending on how bad it looks, we can just shave the lesion off. And it's the benefits of the shave are that they're quick. Um, there's no stitches for the patients to have to get taken out or have to worry about dissolving after a couple of weeks. Of course, it's less invasive. The scar is different. You know, they're going to have a little tiny, you know, more like a sore that has to heal over. So you're not going to want to do that type of biopsy in an area that's really cosmetically sensitive on the crest of the cheek or the tip of the nose or in the forehead. You're not going to want to leave that patient with a little patch scar. So you're going to pick a punch biopsy sometimes just based on location of the body, wanting to have a more linear scar that's closed up. Um, But most of our our biopsies are on the trunk or arms or legs. And those can be really um, quick and easy to do just as a shave. And also if you have an area of high tension, like on the ankle, and you see something that you're worried for skin cancer, it's better to just shave off that lesion and then leave them with a little wound that you're going to tell them how to take care of, as opposed to trying to stitch a clothes and then it dehisses, opens up, and then you know, create a nidus of infection and cause more problems. So in, there are instances where you really do want to, you prefer a shave just for decreasing the, the risk of complications later on. And um, surprisingly, even when we're Sometimes at melanoma and our differential, we are able to shave those lesions because if it's a small pigmented macule, like a little three, four, or five millimeter macule, a shave easily gets underneath it. Um, you just want to get right to the depth of the upper dermis just so you can see if there's any kind of invasion. If you see something that looks like a really bad melanoma and you think this is a melanoma, I just want to make sure, see how deep it goes. Then you're going to want to either do multiple punch biopsies to that lesion, or you're going to actually want to excise that whole lesion and do what's called an excisional biopsy. So we reserve those for ones where we're like, yeah, I can see this melanoma from the doorway, but I want to really assess how aggressive it is and how deep it goes because the depth is going to determine the ultimate excision, if there's a sentinel node biopsy or not. And, and further workup. So in those in those instances, you're you're selecting your biopsies um, in, intentionally with the the mindset of what's going to happen afterwards. Um, rashes. It depends on the rash. Um, if you're biopsying a rash because you're worried about something deeper in the skin, or you're worried about lymphoma, then we want to do punch biopsies because we want to get the depth. But if you're trying to say, is this psoriasis or is this a wart? It's a localized lesion. They have several of them, these focal lesions. You could just shave that off. And you, as long as you're getting you know, the epidermis and superficial dermis, then you're fine shaving a lesion off. And it's, it's fast and patients love not having to have stitches. Again, keeping in, keeping in mind the location on the body and the ultimate cosmesis of that biopsy. Yeah, biopsies, we do so many of them all day long. And because of that, we have to find ways to be efficient and, and cost effective too. Punch biopsies are more expensive. So you really are adding to the cost for that patient overall healthcare dollars. So we really try to be judicious when we do punch biopsies. What about the billing for the dermatologist? Right, is a punch biopsy reimbursed significantly better, or it's similar? Yeah, a punch biopsy does reimburse more. A and the punch equipment is not 
particularly expensive. It's not, no. Um, you definitely you use your punch tool, which is going to be more expensive than a razor blade, but you and you also are using your suture tools. So you're using your needle driver and your pickups and your suture. The most expensive thing with a punch biopsy is the suture. Suture is expensive. So we always, you know, and, and you can't, they, they don't necessarily sell mini packs of suture for punch biopsies. So you're going to open up a whole suture for just a very tiny amount. Um, so some dermatologists actually won't even sew up uh, punch biopsies. They'll just put in a little bit of hemostasis um, powder in there and to just kind of seal it up. But of course, then you got to, you got to worry about the cosmesis of that. Yeah. Then you got to, then you got a symmetric yeah. circular defect. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, the, the reason by punch biopsies do reimburse more is that they do cost more and you're using more equipment out of your clinic and you are doing a little bit more work. Yeah, it's more like time consuming. You want to make sure. Yeah, it's yeah. more time consuming and you're doing and you're, and you're taking a little bit more risk and so is that patient. But because of that, if we don't need to do punch biopsies and we can save healthcare dollars all around, we, we don't. And, and I especially really, I don't do very many of them. I'm doing, you know, maybe a few a week, um, but shave biopsies, we're biopsying every day you know, all day long. We've spoken about rashes, skin cancer. Um, something else that dermatologists do is is cosmetics. We're not really going to get into that on this episode, but am I missing something on uh, the, the breadth and depth of what a dermatologist spends their day doing? Oh, that's a great question because cosmetics is so in the news and to the degree now that the dermatologists that are very well known or the ones that, are, that go on morning shows or, or our ones you read around the media, uh, they do a lot of cosmetics. So it can get, give the impression that it's cosmetics, a large part of every dermatologist's practice. And truth be told, cosmetics is a really small to no part of the type of cosmetics you think of, like Botox and filler and laser, that, that, that type of thing. That type of cosmetics is a small portion of, of most dermatologists. Um, most dermatology is bread and butter dermatology, really. General dermatology, your acne, your skin cancer, your skin checks, warts, psoriasis, autoimmune conditions. A lot of what people don't know is the complex medical dermatology that general dermatologists do. Inflammatory conditions um, and autoimmune connected tissue disease like lupus, dermatomyositis, granulomatous conditions like sarcoidosis, other inflammatory conditions like pyoderma gangrenosum, which is an ulcerative condition, vasculitis, hydratinitis depurativa, sweet syndrome. These are not as common things, but you know we see them you know several times a year. We are treating complex medical dermatology. And to the degree now where there are actually fellowships in inpatient dermatology where you can just specialize as a dermatology hospitalist. And these are in larger institutions, DC, New York, Chicago, where you have actually an inpatient dermatologist who's just doing inpatient consults and managing that complex dermatology. There's cutaneous lymphoma and there's cutaneous lymphoma specialty clinics where uh, dermatologists might, that might be all they do is cutaneous lymphoma. You can specialize in pediatric dermatology where you're going to see more of the rare pediatric conditions and treat infants and neonates. There's dermatopathology, which is, of course, all the biopsy specimens. And most dermatopathologists um, will do uh, three years of dermatology and then they'll go on and do a dermatopathology fellowship. But occasionally you can have a pathology pathologist doing a dermatopathology fellowship. There's dermatologic surgery. So just doing skin cancers. Most surgeons, that's all they do all day long is just skin cancer removal with the most technique. Um, so cosmetics is just you know definitely a small portion, but it's become more visible portion. 
And to the bemoan of, of, of a medical dermatologist like myself, who, you know, I love medical dermatology and complex medical dermatology. And that's really what I want people to know is that we know we're not just pimple poppers and we don't just do Botox and filler. And in fact, that's Botox and filler is a very, very small portion of my practice. It's mostly this kind of complex medical dermatology. Yeah, I've had patients watch Dr. Pimple Popper and then ask me, you know, you should have a show about all the interesting things that you pull out of people's ears and noses. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I guess people like watching that kind of stuff, but I don't know. That people seems like do. it would get. There's only so much we can pull out of someone's nose or out of their out of their ear. This is true. And Doctor Doctor Pimple Popper Sandra Lee, she was one of our residents. Really? So, I, yeah, yeah, I know her well. She she was here a couple she years found before a I was here. She, she found did. A market she found and a market. It. Yeah. And she sure did. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's say you had a room full of your referring physicians, right? Mm-hmm. And as specialists, we all experience this, where you get sent a lot of stuff that you that you really want your referring doctors to be, if, you, if they just knew a couple of things, they might be able to manage those things on their own and not even send them to you. Or conversely, things that they see that, that you'd like them to send you either sooner or more often. So pretend yes. you're speaking in front of a room of your referring doctors. What What is it that you want them to know? Okay. First and foremost, it is so important to have a good history. And I, speaking to doctors, you all know how important history can be. And when it comes to rashes, especially if you're thinking about drug rashes, timing can make all the difference between a diagnosis of one medicine causing the rash versus another uh, another medicine or one type of drug rash versus another so get as much history as you can about the rash, including an in-depth medical history, travel history, affected contacts. And of course, if you're considering things that are more systemic, like a, a dermatologic manifestation of endocrine disease, you want to make sure you get a complete review of system. So really get a good history. When you're examining the skin, many times patients will tell you they just have a rash on their hands or on their neck. They They don't they may not tell you about other areas or they may actually not even be aware and that can really be your clue. For example, if you're thinking about dermatomyositis and you just see someone that has an eyelid rash and you, you might think, well, maybe that's just from a contact allergy. But if you have them get into a gown, you might notice all the other findings like the, the shawl sign and the rash on the back, the, the rash on the back of their um, neck or upper back. Um, looking at their nails is really important. So anytime you've got a rash, don't forget to look at the scalp, the hands and feet, and nails. You can get a lot of clues. Alopecia areata. What are we looking for? A, what are we looking for? for so looking al- yeah, like so for alopecia areata, which is a, an autoimmune condition of, of hair loss on the scalp, or it can actually be on the body too. You will see regular nail pits. So nail pits look like little tiny pits in the nails, and they look very regular, like they're nice, neat little lines. And it can be helpful because if you have a patient who tells you they have hair loss, but while their spot isn't here now, they just, they're describing a spot that sounds like alopecia areata, but they don't have anything because the hair has grown back since. If you see regular nail pits in their nails, that's your clue to alopecia areata. Psoriasis has a lot of nail findings. You can see psoriasis only in the nails, or you can see psoriasis in the nails in addition to what's on their body. So if you're not quite sure. Is this eczema or is this psoriasis? And then if you look at the nails, if you see irregular nail pitting, so nail pitting that doesn't have any any pattern to it, just looks really haphazard, that's a sign of nail psoriasis. 
Um, if you see something called onycholysis, where it looks like the, the tips of the nails are yellowed and they have this kind of mountain range formation, like instead of us having it, we have a nice clean border, right, to the whites of our nails. But in onycholysis nails, those tips, they don't look white, they look yellow. And instead of being nice and straight, they, they go up and down like the ridges of a mountain. You can see oil spots, which are these yellow-brown spots under the, under the nail plate. Um, so that, that can be your clue if you're debating between psoriasis and eczema. If it doesn't have that classic silvery white scale of psoriasis, it always helps if you're thinking about referring to a dermatologist to take some really good high-quality photos. And you can, most people can, if you have an iPhone or a smartphone, Smartphones take fantastic pictures. Of course, you have to get consent from the patients and we, we always have a written consent form. I mean, you have to make sure that you take them off your phone or you encrypt it somehow. We have an encryption app that we use. But, just um, have really, the patient do it themselves, like, right? You can. That's, you can we, absolutely have the patient do it on their own phone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I work with an allergist and he, he always, you know, if someone calls up or if I'm sending a patient to him, I will always tell the patient, take some pictures with your phone before going to see him because by the time you get yeah. to see him, it might be gone. And then you're just stuck yeah. describing it and it's really hard. So, so have the patient even take a picture. Then there's no issue with HIPAA. It's on their phone. It's absolutely. And it's oftentimes patients will have great quality, great quality photos. They know that they don't want it to be blurry because it's their own rash. They want to make sure that they're showing their rash the way that it is. So making sure when you take it that their photos aren't blurry. No Instagram um, filters. No Instagram filters. That's right. Let, let that puppy shine. <laughs> if at all possible, avoid giving steroids before seeing us. Um, many times uh, they'll get a referral to see dermatology and they'll get steroids in, in their um primary care doctor's office. And when, unfortunately, when the patient yes, the rash isn't there, you know, and, or it's been modified and it makes it more challenging for us to be able to work it up. Um, so if, if the patient doesn't need to have prednisone, if you can manage with topicals, with antihistamines, if you can do whatever you can to not give them the steroids, it really does help us, especially if they're seeing us fairly quickly. Um, a couple other pearls, patients often think things are spider bites. And when they frame it as spider bites, um, that, that, can, that can influence the physician as seeing them too. So my, my rule here is it's almost never a spider bite. <laughs> spider bites are super rare. And unless the patient has the classic exam findings of a red, white, and blue lesion that's expanding and very painful, or they actually saw the bite happen, it's probably not a spider bite. Oh, if you're seeing patients in the hospital, especially, we get a lot of consultations and there's been several articles written about uh, the the medical dollars that are unfortunately misspent on cellulitis uh, and misdiagnosis of cellulitis. So if you have a patient that you think has bilateral cellulitis, rethink that diagnosis. It's probably not bilateral cellulitis. It is almost definitely venous stasis. And there are some excellent articles that have been published in the last two years that actually show how common it is to have venous stasis misdiagnosed as cellulitis and the the morbidity and mortality that come from the medications that are then put on, you know, the patients have to be on because cellulitis is what they thought it was, or the hospital dollars are spent on those admissions. So having a dermatologist being consulted for cases of suspected cellulitis can be really helpful early on. So that's, we want you to call us. We want you to, if you're thinking, is this cellulitis and is this both legs? give us a call, you know, and, and those consults are great because we can potentially avoid that patient admission of antibiotics. Um, for my surgeons out there, we have a lot of uh, patients that tell us my orthopedic surgeon won't operate unless my psoriasis is cleared. 
And I think the fear comes from the fact that psoriasis can kebnerize. So if you have a cut or an injury, psoriasis can show up in that location. Uh, so the fear is, well, I don't want to, I don't want to cut on this person and have them get, have them get psoriasis there. And the truth of the matter is, is we can't, we can't really stop kebnerization. A patient can have a medication on board, like a systemic medication for psoriasis, and that could help them not kebnerize. But you're not going to put a patient on a systemic medication for mild psoriasis just to prevent kebnerization. So if they, if you know, we'll get consults often from our surgeons say, can you make sure that their psoriasis is cleared? And they may just have a few patches on their body that aren't warranted to have any kind of systemic medications. And you give them a cream, and but it's not going to potentially prevent the kebnerization. So I really hate to have patient surgeries delayed or the procedures delayed because of a fear of the psoriasis. So I really encourage all my surgeons to say, you know what, we'll do the best we can to treat their psoriasis that we have, but go ahead and treat the patient. And if they end up getting psoriasis in an area that they had the surgery in, we'll manage it. We'll take care of it. What is kebnerization? Kebnerization is when you get psoriasis showing up in an area of injury. So a cut, a scar, anything, anything where the skin has been traumatized, you can get a spot of psoriasis showing up there. And psoriasis isn't the only condition that does that. There are other conditions that do that, but psoriasis is the most most common condition, that, or at least the most well-known condition to kebnerize. And um, it really causes, I think, a lot of concern on surgeons' parts and doing surgery on psoriasis patients. But um, our feeling is we can manage the psoriasis and we can manage through that. Um, you know, we'd always encourage to not delay any necessary operations because someone has psoriasis. Oh, one, one other important pearl, one I have to say, which is um, hives. So Hives can be a thing that a lot of things can look like hives, and you can have things that are hive-like, but it's not true urticaria unless the lesion has been there less than 24 hours and goes away within 24 hours. So if you get an outbreak of hives, you might notice that you get spots for days or weeks. But if you were to circle an individual lesion, that lesion should be gone in 24 hours. And you may get other ones, of course, but any given lesion will not last longer than a day. So if you have a lesion lasting longer than a day, like a couple of days or a couple of weeks, it's not high. Not a high, great. Not hives, yeah. And there's almost no role for prednisone anymore with hives. You really just want to maximize those antihistamines. And that's something, that's something anyone can do is making sure they've maximized those antihistamines. And they really don't need those medral dose packs unless they have a really, really severe case. Wow, this was extremely informative. I really appreciate it. Where uh, yeah. where will find you online. I know you're very active on Twitter. Yes, I am. And I, I, you know, I haven't done a lot of dermatology tutorials. I can definitely put uh, a plug in for some awesome dermatologists who post great content on Derm Twitter. Dr. Stephen Chen is a great one. He posts, uh, he's over at Harvard and he's a, co- a friend and I've, I've met him through some other leadership circles that I've been involved with, but he is a wonderful dermatologist, but great educator on Twitter. There's also Ade Adamson. He does a lot of, like he'll, he'll post a lot of um, journal articles and break down that article for you. Like he broke down the sunscreen article, the, the, the one that that broke the news last year about sunscreen being in the bloodstream. And there was another one that just came out last month. And so he'll often take those controversial topics and break them down and tell you what's up, you know, what's the deal with this. So he's a great one to follow on Twitter. And then there's several others on Derm Twitter that are really phenomenal. And I have interested a lot of dermatology because 
I don't know why. I don't know why. <laughs> I mean, I teach it all day long. And I think many times on Twitter, I, I, I post about my other interests, um, particularly my interest in diversity and, and equity. But I love dermatology. And if, if pearls like this are helpful, then and if there's a need for them, there's so many more. Like I have a list of a whole, like a, a whole page of stuff like this. And I well, love then talking about We'll have about to have you back for another so. episode. Yeah. Part yeah. two. Yeah, sure thing. More mm-hmm. clinical pearls with Dr. Shatsaravitha Bowers. Oh, man, I yes. can't believe yes. I'm having some trouble with that. It rolled That's off the okay. tongue when I'm talking to you. And then when, <laughs> when I'm saying it during the episode, I sound foolish like that. Well, you're going to be practicing it all day long. I now, am right? definitely going to be practicing because when you come back with part two, which will happen, yeah. <laughs> even though this episode has been in the, the first email was from June of 2019, and now we're recording it. In I know, 2020. It's so, so wild. I'm sure we'll we'll be able to connect again, maybe in 2021, uh, for for the yeah. next episode. Yeah. and by that time, I will be on point with it. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Dr. Bowers, really, I appreciate your time. I've learned a lot, and I'm sure our listeners have as well. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure. It was such a treat talking with you and I'm happy to come back anytime. And we can, I think we can arrange something for less than a year from now. Sounds good. (laughs) Thanks so much, Brad. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.